Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's get going. Um, it doesn't happen too often, but every once in a while I've got a question that, that gets me to thinking, and, and, uh, and it's sort of like, um, sort of like, a, it, it sort of a, it can make your brain hurt a little bit, maybe. But, um, but uh, I want to use it to develop something, especially as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah, just these ideas. So here, here's the example. Um, here's the example that I've been thinking about. Imagine you go and you buy a lottery ticket, right? And when you buy the lottery ticket, you're, you're not really thinking about it so much. And by the way, I, I, I can't even talk about lottery tickets without telling you this one thing, which is that I heard from Rabbi Green that it's absolutely 100% kosher to buy a lottery ticket. In terms of Jewish law, you don't have to worry about that at all. However, you can only buy one lottery ticket. Because if you buy more than one lottery ticket, that's a lack of amuna, a lack of faith in God. Because God doesn't need you to have two lottery tickets to find one of them a winning lottery ticket. In other words, we do have a concept in, in, in Torah, uh, it's called hishtablis, that you have to make an effort. But the effort is buying the one lottery ticket. Beyond that, God, at that point, God has all he needs if he wants to bless you. So anyway, here's the example. Imagine you buy a lottery ticket, and you don't really give it a second thought. You just buy the lottery ticket... And then, if you're like me, sometimes you buy a lottery ticket and you never even check it. And you never even think to check it because, really, what are the odds that you're going to win anyway? In the moment, you thought, let me buy it, but let's be serious. I'm never going to win, so I'm never even going to check it. So, now, in this example, imagine you buy the ticket, you never, ever check it, ever, ever check it, and you never even think to have checked it, right? Now, imagine that was a $30 million lottery ticket winner. Here's the question, and don't answer so fast. Here's the question. Did you lose $30 million or not? So, <laughs> on the one hand, on the one hand, you can say, well, yeah, you lost the $30 million because it was a $30 million winner. But on the other hand, don't you have to have something in order to lose it? And if you never had the consciousness that you had it, how did you lose it? Because there was never a sense of ownership to begin with. So how do you lose what you never had? And by the way, my father, who was, um, Oliver Shalom, who was, uh, you know, a, a psychologist for, for 50 years he practiced, um, he would often say that, and in terms of relationships, and sometimes you get um, bitterly disappointed or feel betrayed by another person and, and something like that, or someone really exhibits a form of behavior which is just so off and so wrong. And my father would say to the person who got hurt, he'd say, listen, you, you can't lose what you never had. They were never a real friend to begin with, because if they were a real friend, they wouldn't be acting this way. So that's, um, it's a sobering thought, but, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's something good to know. So, so anyway, let's apply that to the lottery ticket. If you never really had the ticket, okay, it's true you bought it, but if you never really checked it, if you never really valued it, if you, if you never knew it was a winning ticket and you lost it, did you ever lose it because you never really had it? Okay, so on one hand you can say, no, you didn't lose anything. On the other hand you can say, what are you, crazy? <laughs> It's a $30 million lottery ticket and you lost it. Hashem was blessing you with $30 million and you blew it. He made a miracle for you and you didn't hold on to the ticket. 
you 100% lost that entire amount. You know what? I hear that side also. I hear both sides. You know, I was thinking of, the, of a variation of that. Okay, you ready for this question? Let's say you buy a lottery ticket and you don't even think about it. You put it in the back of a drawer. It gets covered over by your socks and underwear in the, in the back. You never think about it again. You never look at it again. But it's sitting there in your drawer and it's a $30 million ticket, winning ticket. And you're going through life completely unaware of its value and that it's sitting in the drawer. Are you a millionaire or not? Depends how long it takes. Okay, okay, show of hands. Who says you're a millionaire? Who says you're not a millionaire? Okay, so it's, uh, you know, I've only asked, I asked asked my son just as I was running out. And uh, so I've got a very limited sample in terms of polling for this question. But he... He did say something, which I think a lot of people would say, which is that in the first instance where you bought the ticket and then you never checked it again and it was a winner, but you never knew it was a winner. So did you lose it? No, you didn't lose it. You you, you didn't lose it. You didn't lose the money. But with the ticket in the drawer, which is sitting in your drawer, are you a millionaire? Yeah, you're a millionaire. So. I think that thinking is kind of interesting where, where, where there's a split ticket, so to speak. On the one instance, you didn't lose anything. On the other instance, you still have it. So there could be something to that too, all these different approaches. I asked this question, Shabbos morning we were learning. Someone said something very interesting, I thought, which is, he said, you know what? Let's say you buy the ticket and then you never checked it. You buy the, chick- the ticket, you never checked it. You forgot about it. You lost it, whatever it is. Turns out it was a winner. You never knew it was a winner. He said, you know what? Hashem will find another opportunity to bless you. If he wanted to bless you, he'll find another opportunity to bless you. I thought that was an interesting answer. I thought that was an interesting answer, too. So, so now I want to throw out another metaphor, another mushal for you. And I'm continuing the theme of the lottery ticket. We're not changing the subject, but we're going to make it maybe a little bit deeper and apply this to our lives. Okay? So, imagine, imagine you're sitting behind the wheel of a Lamborghini. I don't know um, if everyone knows what a Lamborghini is. Most people know what a Ferrari is. It's a very expensive, high-end sports car. So, a so a Lamborghini is like a Ferrari squared, right? That's like, you know, that's like the next big level up would be a Lamborghini. So it's like a super high-end, incredibly expensive sports car, okay? So you're sitting behind the wheel of a Lamborghini, and you just bought it. You don't know how it works or anything like that, but there it is. It's yours. You're sitting in the driver's chair, and you're reading the owner's manual for the Ford Taurus. All right? Now, I don't know if everyone's expert in cars here. The Ford Taurus, it's a good car, but it's like, you know, it's like a, it's a working person's car. It's like a very affordable, reliable car that you go, you drive to work, you drive home, it'll get you there and back. Nothing fancy. Perfectly good car, but no frills, right? So, kind of interesting. You're sitting behind the wheel of a Lamborghini, which has 
which is completely tricked out. It's got all sorts of incredible, amazing abilities and functions. And you've got your Ford Taurus owner's manual that you're reading how to operate it. So, so what happens there? Well, I guess you're going to be able to get it started. I guess you're going to be able to do maybe 60 on the freeway. <laughs> right? But what about all these awesome things that are contained in this car that your user's manual, you're not going to have the ability to, to access because you don't know about it. Okay, so how does this apply to us? So it seems to me, let's talk about the Jewish soul right now. You're a Jew, you don't know anything about, you don't know anything about how we understand the world. What we, what, what we understand the, the truth of the soul to be. So, on your own, you figure out, if you walk by a uh, person who's on the street, who's sitting on the sidewalk, who's in rags, you give them some money, that, that you can figure out on your own. You can figure out basic decency on your own. You know, in other words, you can get the car going 60 miles an hour on the freeway on your own, but are you going to be able to figure out that on the 15th of the month of Tishrei that you should sit in a sukkah, right? And how to make the sukkah? What a sukkah is. Are you going to be able to figure that out? You're not going to be able to figure that out. Oh, you mean that button over there on the dash? You know, that, that does that? That gets me to go 200 miles an hour? Are you going to be able to figure out tefillin or, or all these amazing mitzvahs that we have, all these different aspects of the soul that we have access to. But we need the information to have access to the things. All right. So now, let's get back to the lottery ticket. A person ascends after 120 and stands before the heavenly court. And... It's like that person who bought the winning lottery ticket, but never knew it. Did he lose anything? Did that person lose anything? Because they never knew they had the ticket. So the answer is, yeah, the person absolutely lost something. They had all these different aspects to their soul. They had all these different opportunities. And they never knew about them. And they were there. They won them. They had them. I mean, being born Jewish or becoming Jewish, whatever it is, is... it's. The odds are pretty much the same odds as winning the lottery, by the way. Because we're one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. And that, that is, that's very surprising to um, most people, especially people who aren't Jewish. Because they see Jewish names and we're so prominent in, in so many different fields that the expectation is we must be, you know, ten times larger, twenty times or a hundred times larger than we actually are. Because otherwise, there's no way to explain our prominence in the world. But we're a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the world's population. So yes, if, if we had these things and we had these potentials and everything like that, if we had the winning lottery ticket and we never knew that we had it, yeah, we lost. However, what about that idea that, you know what, Hashem will give it back to you in another way. If you had it. So maybe, does that work? So I was thinking about that and I realized, wow, that also works. What about reincarnation? Maybe in this life, maybe in this life we didn't get it, but then God says, okay, I'm going to give you another chance. 
I'm going to give you another time at it. You know, but reincarnation is, I tell you, a very striking Torah that I heard from, from Reb Shlomo himself in the name of the Kutzka Rebbe about reincarnation. Now, remember, Kutsk, Kutsk was like very, 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 very serious business. Very serious business. Like, it was all about truth. And they weren't into buttering each other up. You know, like social formalities and everything like this. It was like everything was cutting to the bottom line and it was just truth. And they used to refer to the, the fire of Kutsk, the fire. You know, it was like very, very bottom line centered. Okay. Kutsk Rebbe once told his Hasidim, and remember, who, were, who would gravitate to Kutsk to begin with? Only someone who had a passion for the truth, who was on fire for the truth, who wanted to give up everything in their life only to pursue the truth. Those were the only people who were there to begin with. Okay? So, with that in mind, the Kutzka Rebbe said to his Hasidim, after 120, don't, don't kid yourself. You're not going to be offered Gan Eden. You're not going to be offered paradise. You're going to be offered one of two things. Gehenim or reincarnation. Those are going to be your choices. Gehenim is translated in English as hell, but let me explain, because our concept of hell, quote-unquote, we don't have that word, that's an English word from a different religion. Our concept of Gehenim is, is, is very different from, from another religion's concept of hell. So let me just explain what the, what the difference is. First of all, just think in terms of the, the cosmic map right now. Generally speaking, we think of earth is in the middle, heaven is above, and hell is below. That's how we tend to think of things. That's not the Jewish concept. The Jewish concept is there's earth, then above earth is Gehenna, then above Gehenna is Shemaim, or heaven. And that all souls pass through Gehenna on the way to Shemaim, on the way to heaven. And depending, it's sort of like the it's kind of like the dry cleaners, so to speak. Depending on how soiled one's garment is, you either spend a lot of time at the dry cleaners or you just kind of zip through. But, but every soul passes through. And we say, very interestingly, that, the, that even the person who really blew it the most... Um, that we only say Kaddish for them for 11 months. Because that would be the, 12 months would be the longest that they would spend there. And so since we don't want to say that that person needed 12 months of elevation, so we say, okay, everyone gets 11 months of a Kaddish. And, 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 and that's all it is. Okay? But ideally, we're out of there much faster. Now, I'll give you one PS, which uh, is, is a little sobering. I think the way time passes there is a little bit different from the way time passes here. So, that's, that's my personal understanding. So, you know. But, but, if you want to say otherwise, let me just tell you one thing. Sam, I think this is your story, but I'm not sure. Um, were you the one who smelled the peppermint in Colorado? No. Okay, so it's someone else. I think it's Yehuda. Then. So, so, the Celestial Seasonings tea plant, they've got tours of that place. 
and they've got one room, they give you, they've got one room which is the peppermint room. And the peppermint room, they, they close off. Okay? So, so uh, a friend of mine walked into the peppermint room, and they closed the door, and he said that after 30 seconds, his eyes were burning, the inside of his nose was on fire. He had to get out of there. So, and that's, you know, that's, that's the peppermint room. Peppermint is kind of a happy place, you would think, right? So, um, so sometimes if an experience is extremely intense, time moves more slowly, even if it's only 30 seconds. So that would be the other side of it. So maybe 11 months is 11 months, so who knows? Anyway, we, we're not in this category. We don't have to worry about this. But, um, but anyway, the point is, also, you, know, you should know that there are many stories about Rebbe's who passed through Gehenna and wouldn't leave Gehenna unless they took everyone who was in Gehenna with them up to Shemai. And uh, that, that's quite amazing in itself. So let's get back to the Kutzker Rebbe. He says to his, his, his Hasidim, at the end of 120, don't kid yourself. Right? Remember, they're all about truth. You think that you're going to be offered, you think you're going to be offered Shemayim, heaven, outright, right? He says, you're going to be offered one of two things, Gehenna or reincarnation. And he said, choose Gehenna. Why? Because the idea of coming back down into this world, who knows? Who knows? It's a big gamble. A lifetime in this world is a big gamble. You know, who knows that we're going to be able to maintain our righteousness? It's a big deal, you know? You know, something very important that we all have to know, and it's a freeing thought in a big way. It's a freeing thought. Um, But it's heavy at the same time. The Gemara says that a lot of our lives is determined. A lot of our lives is determined. Money is one of those things. Now, through prayer and, and good deeds, things can change. But the, the broad contours of our life in many ways are, are sort of determined. However, however, there's one area that is absolutely not determined. And that's whether we're going to be righteous or not. And that's the whole ballgame right there. Are we going to be righteous or not? You know? It says, Everything is in the hands of heaven except except the awe of heaven. That's our choice. And that is, that is the, 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 the main battleground of our lifetime. We think, um, you know, we think that, especially in America, we, you want to make something out of yourself? You've got to make something out of yourself? So, so you've got to turn your, your small shop into a chain of shops, and now it's national, now it's international. That's the definition of making something out of yourself. So we as Jews say, wait a second, you know what it means to make something out of yourself? You know, choosing righteousness. Choosing righteousness throughout, every day. Today I'm choosing again. Today I'm choosing again. You know, the Chos of Lublin, one of the greatest of all the Hasidic Rebbe's, probably one of the for sure, one of the greatest uh, people who ever lived in, in human history. He used to say, every single day, every single day in the morning, he would say, 
Today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Today I'm going to be a tzaddik. He chose righteousness in a real way. You know, we talk about, we were talking about how the definition of righteousness is rededicating yourself to righteousness, right? So, every single day, right, he didn't, he didn't have to fall and then, and then pick himself up. Before he fell, he rededicated himself. You know, talk about a, a preemptive strike, right? So that's, that's an awesome thing. You know, it reminds me of something. i tell you the, the last words of advice my mother told me before I went to Harvard. You ready? I was standing by the elevator. And, uh, and um, this was it. I was going, that, that, was, that, was, the, that was the final, the final leaving on the way to school. And my mother said, said, remember, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. <laughs> Which I think was some kind of folk expression that I don't, I don't know where it comes from. You know what I mean? And I'm so frankly trying to figure out what it means. But I think, <laughs> I think it means keep your eye on, on the big picture, on the thing that's there, on what you have, not on what you don't have. Wow. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I, at just this moment, as I was saying that, I think that's actually what it means. Keep your eye on the donut, on the part that you have, and not on the whole. That part, that's actually pretty deep, now that I think about it. Because, because the whole, the hollow part, is actually within that part which you have. It's not keep your eye on the donut, not on the table, the empty table behind the donut. In other words, that hollow part exists within the part that you actually have. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I'll, tell you, uh, I'll tell you another thing, just because it's kind of a bookend thing. I, I know I never told you this story. Pretty sure. That was, that, was, that was going to Harvard. I'm going to tell you the story, the last thing that someone said to me leaving Harvard. This is after I had graduated senior year. Okay? It's a bit of a sad story, but... Um, Striking. Um, so I, I got a ride with some friends. I, I honestly don't even remember who it was at this point. And uh, the car was parked. And it was parked in front of... I, I, I wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, the humor magazine, when I, when I was at school. And that, that was the beginning of my uh, writing for TV. Um, and so the car was parked in front of the Lampoon building. And... Um, and they were getting ready to drive away. The, the, the car was all packed up and whoever was going was going. Everything, everything was all set. And I was going for one last trip back to my room just to bring some, whatever left was there. But it was something that I could carry with one hand. I mean, that, this was the final trip at the end of everything. All the packing, all the graduation, all the everything. This was it. This was the leaving part, Okay. So I went back up to the room. I, I grabbed whatever I grabbed. It was just like one or two items. It was all done. And I'm walking to the car and I'm passing the Lampoon building to get to that. I can see it in my mind where the, the corner of the car was parked on. And there was a person who unfortunately lost his mind. And he took too many drugs and he lost his mind. And uh, very sad. I mean, he had been a Harvard undergraduate, and he had gone to Harvard Business School, and he was basically a homeless person at this point with long hair and a long beard, and um, 
he, I don't know how to say it any other way. He had lost his mind. And every, every period of time he would resurface in Cambridge. And because he had been a member of the Lampoon, he would sleep in the building for a while and then disappear again for a period of years. And uh, we had become friends. I liked him very much, actually. He was a very gentle, very nice person. And as I was walking by the building to leave, he stuck his head out the window and he called out to me and he said, David! And I looked back and I said, yeah. And he said, don't forget, don't be afraid to take chances. And, you know, it makes me sad because great advice, but coming from him, someone who took too many chances and the wrong chances. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. And I don't think I ever saw him again, by the way. Well, wherever he is, Shem Shiblas. Amen. Yeah. So, so yeah. I remember when I first became observant I used to look at um, old observant men with, with gray beards. You know, for whatever reason, a lot of times they were short also. I don't know why. Maybe because just the way it had fallen out, they probably were born in Europe and, and things like that. And, you know, nutrition has a lot to do with how tall you grow. And a lot of that generation in Europe um, were malnourished. And they just, they turned out short, you know. And I think, on some level, sometimes Jewish men even got a reputation for being short, which is, which is wrong. We're not a, a short people at all. And if you look at, you know, modern-day Israel, you'll see, you know, they're big, hulking, you know, people, and even in America. So, so, but I think that that was born from a stereotype because of people who were malnourished, basically. So, um, anyway, I would look at these, I would look at these people, you know, with their gray beards and smallish and sometimes hunched over from age. And I would think, man, they made it all the way through. You know, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. They kept their righteousness. They kept their righteousness all the way through. They held on to it. They won. They won. They won. You know, one of the things that uh, one of the moments, I'll just walk you through a, 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 a thought process that I had that was a turning point in my life. Uh, I had been putting on tefillin for a number of months, and, but I hadn't yet started keeping Shabbos. I was 24 at the time, and, um, and I went to Europe just for like a week or so, and uh, met my, um, my sister was living in, in London with her husband at the time, and then I went from there to Amsterdam and then Paris, and, and uh, while I was there, I realized something which, uh, which kind of struck me. I had never been alone in my entire life. You know, uh, I was either with my family or I was in summer camp or I was, uh, you know, at school or I was on some kind of program or vacation. But being around, 
being alone where I didn't know anyone by myself? Okay, granted, there, were, there was a city peop- worth of people around me, but, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I, I didn't know anybody, and nobody knew me. And it was in that environment that I actually changed my life and decided that I wanted to start keeping Shabbos. You know, a lot of times we, um, and I haven't gotten to the point yet, but this is part of it. A lot of times we're, we're held prisoner by our friends and our family and their expectations of us and who they've decided we are. And a lot of times we decide that we're that thing that other people have decided we are. And we're, we're prisoners of expectations. And what we really want, we're afraid to do. And, and I had never really thought of it in those terms before. But when I was by myself, I was like, well, I can do what I want to do, right? So if I want to, if I want to do this, let me do this. So I was thinking, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the last moments of my life, you know, hopefully I'd be an old man, 120 at that moment, but lying on my bed, and I thought to myself, you know, in a really weird way, I'll tell you something, just so you understand what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, I don't want to mention the name, but I knew someone, I was just a little kid at the time, so I didn't really appreciate who this person was, but I knew someone who's uh, world famous, right? Not like we used to sit and hang out together. He was, he was a great person in the world, and you know, I was a little kid, right? But he would say hello to me, and I would say hello to him, okay. But a world famous person, you'd know the name if I mentioned so this world-famous person had an enormous success, which is what he's known for. An enormous, enormous success. And for the rest of his life, was never able to equal or top that success by a long shot. Never came close for the rest of his life, his professional life, topping or even coming close to matching that thing that he was most famous for. And he tried. He worked very, 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 very hard to... To, to equal it or to top it. Never did. That's a, that's a hard place to be. You know? It's a hard place to be. I'm speaking also as a creative person myself, so maybe I have an, an additional appreciation for, for, that, for that place in life. And uh, in the outside world, a lot of people don't have any appreciation for that level of predicament because they go, oh, got famous over that thing. Yeah, that's great. And everything like that. And there's no, there's no sense of that person waking up again and again and again and trying and trying and trying and not being able to duplicate what they had done. There's no appreciation for that. For most people. If you're a more sensitive person, then you, then you can appreciate it. So I thought to myself, you know something? That person, knowing that person, he no longer derives the type of pleasure that you would imagine he derives for the success that he had. <laughs> He's living in the present moment. And the present moment is, is, is a moment of, of, of failure on some level. On some level. Now that's, that's a very interesting peek into human psychology. So applying that to myself, I thought, 
at this at this point in my life, I'm sitting on a I'm sitting on a bus right now. It was the midnight bus from Amsterdam to Paris, and I'm sitting there, and uh, and I'm thinking about my life and what direction I'm going to go in. And I'm thinking about those last moments, and I thought to myself, you know something? If those are my last moments. It's really important how I feel about myself at that moment. <laughs> because if I've been happy, say, in my 20s or 30s or whatever it is, that's not going to mean that much to me at that moment right then and there. How I feel about myself right then and there is more or less going to determine how I felt about my life. So I thought to myself, at that moment, I'm just putting myself in that mindset. If I never started keeping Shabbos, I'm going to look back on my life and I'm going to think, man, I blew it. Talking personally. Talking about myself right now. And I thought, you know something? I need to protect how I feel about myself that moment. I need to protect that moment. And so that's really the decision that, that really the, the, the moment I can remember when I decided absolutely to commit to keeping Shabbos. And then, of course, it's a process. After you do that, then you get tested in various ways and you go up and you down and that's okay. It's a process after that. But the first step is that, that moment of commitment and that's, that's when I did that. And uh, you know, right now it's the month of El. And we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, I have, I have a little bit of trouble with this concept of Elul, to be honest with you. You know, this idea, the king is in the field. He's accessible. It's, Elul is the, it's, we always read about the city of refuge. Elul is the city of refuge. It's Ani Vidodili, right? Is that how you say it? Ani yeah, that, that one, yeah. <laughs> so, I am to my beloved and my beloved is mine. All these, all these inspiring Elul teachings that, that you hear every year. So what's my problem with Elul? Every day has to be Elul. If you're not living your life every single day like that, then, 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 then there's something off. You know, I, I, I remember, um, there was a, one of Reb Shlomo's top Hasidim, um, uh, Reb Dovid, and he lived in the old city, and he was Nifter uh, a few years ago. And he was a very, very special person. And uh, the, the, the last time I saw him, I was, uh, I was in, I was in, I was in Jerusalem, and it was Friday night, and I had left someone's house for dinner, and it was still early. I was only going to be there for a few days, and, and I thought, okay, it's only midnight. I mean, the, the night is young. You know, I can't go to sleep now, so, but I didn't know where to go. I'm not going to start knocking on people's doors at midnight, right? So I didn't know what to do, so I went into the Rova, which is sort of the central square there in the old city, and I just kind of sat there, and I thought, you know, just sit there. Something's going to happen. If you just sit there. Just be patient. So there was like a backpacker next to me. So I kind of started a conversation with him, but it was clear that wasn't going anywhere. You know, so I was like, okay, that's not it. You know, so just be patient. Just sit there. 
And I see there's like this uh, interesting looking Jew, like sitting on a bench like about 10 yards away by himself. He's just kind of sitting there. He's got kind of like a black, grayish, medium length beard. He's kind of just sitting there and whatever it is. So I continue to sit there and at some point he gets up and he walks. He's kind of walking home, I guess, and he walks by me. And I'm thinking, is he like a Reb Shlomo Chassid? I I wasn't quite sure. I couldn't quite read his look, you know? So as he walked by, I I sort of said in a quietish voice, I said, brother. And he turned to me and he said, brother, brother! (laughs) And I said, okay, I hit the jackpot. (laughs) And then we then talked for the next five and a half hours straight. (laughs) We went back to his place and I heard amazing stories about Reb Shlomo's early days and the Hasidim and all sorts of things I'd never heard before and amazing, amazing things. And then we went to the mikveh in the middle of the night and then we davened Vasikin by the Kotel. And it was really a great, that's uh, right at the moment when the sun comes up. So that's like the first m- moment that you can daven. And it was really great. It was really special, really, really special. Never forget it. Um, so, you know, he, he said over a, a, a Torah that I'll never forget. Many years ago, I had met him, actually, when I was about 15 or so. I had been to the Moshav. He was on the Moshav. His, uh, his daughter was having a bas mitzvah. And uh, he said about the fact, because it's, it's, it's actually a really strange thing that we Jews mark the beginning of the day at nightfall. Kind of odd if you think about it, right? Like, like day is synonymous with the sun. Night is synonymous with the moon. You know, that's what are we doing? Starting the new day when three stars come out in the sky? That's a bizarre thing if you think about it. If you want to be honest about it. So what he said was that when three stars come out, that's the promise of light. And the promise of light is enough for us. That's the beginning of the day. The promise of light is the beginning of the day. And that's what we mark. Um, so one time, he was kind of, he was famous for a number of things, but one thing was um, his Shalashudases. They would go very long on Shabbos. And um, I was at one of them, and and, and he was talking that, he said, you know, a person, imagine a person is like doing their, by the river, doing their laundry or something like that. And then he said, then imagine that, um, then imagine that, um, but here it's Pesach night. Okay, so it's a bit of a crazy example because, you know, Pesach night, you, you know Pesach's coming up for quite a period of time before it's Pesach night. But anyway, just go with the example. Then it's Pesach night. He said that person should be able to go from their seeming menial activity straight to the Pesach table without actually having to adjust their frame of mind. Meaning to say that they are going through their entire life like it's Pesach night. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, they said about him that he lived every single day like it was Rosh Hashanah. So this idea of Elul, it's always Elul. 
It's always Pesach. It's always Rosh Hashanah. It's always Yom Kippur. It's never not that. Rav Shlomo said something very, very interesting. One of the, I would say, one of the, you know, we talk about cash Torahs. These are Torahs that you have to have in your pocket at all times, meaning to say that they're part of your working consciousness. And if anyone ever asks you, you should be able to be able to say a Torah like this over right away, fluently. It's available at your fingertips. So this is a cash Torah. Rabbi Shlomo said, what's the difference between retail sin and wholesale sin? <laughs> right? So that's his... That's the way sometimes he would phrase things, you know, kind of humorously. Meaning, you know, wholesale is when you... That's a lot. So, so in this version, retail sin would be a smaller mistake and wholesale sin would be a very great mistake, right? So listen, listen to the example that he gives. He says, a person is davening by the Kotel. And a uh, person is davening by the Kotel and they're davening their hearts out. By the way, he says, this is the example of wholesale sin. He's giving you an example of a big Avera right now. A very big Avera. A person is davening their hearts out at the Kotel. And they're praying, praying, praying so hard. And then they finish davening and they turn around and they go, okay, now back to real life. That's a wholesale thing. What does that mean, back to real life? Like this was, you were davening by the Kotel, that's like you were in fantasy mode? That was fantasy mode? And now you're back to the real world where God doesn't exist. Or maybe he exists, but in the most remote occasional ways. I heard an amazing quote on the... uh, Never thought I'd quote uh, Philip Dick. Is that his name? The the detective novelist? Did I say it right? Yeah, so... Heard an amazing quote from him on the radio this morning. You ready for this? Reality is that thing that continues to exist after you stop believing in it. (laughs) That's a heavy-duty religious quote. I'm going to say it one more time because this is strong. I mean, it's funny because I've been saying this exact point many, many times, but never in this way. I think it's a very nice phrasing of it. Reality is that thing that continues to exist even after you stop believing in it. See, we think we make the biggest mistake in the entire world. We think God exists to the extent that I believe in Him. God exists whether you believe in Him or not. And if He exists, if He exists, then then that's all that's going on, and it is all that's going on. You know, one of the things on this, uh, this uh, tape that I mentioned before the, we, we started the talk that I heard, it was a, a Torah from the Rishina Rebbe. And it's so funny, this, this, this Torah. It's such a funny Torah because you're going to hear it and your first reaction is going to be, duh, right? But then you think again and go, whoa. <laughs> 
Okay, you want to hear something that's really deceptive in terms of its depth? Listen to this. The Rishna Rebbe says, um, uh, the, uh, oh boy, now I hope I'm going to say it properly. That, uh, that, um, boy, okay, well, now I've moved to quoting it to paraphrasing it. <laughs> But anyway, here was the basic idea. He says, most people's problem with God is religion. And when you hear that, that sounds like saying most people's, you know, problem with a restaurant they don't like is the food. We think of God and religion as synonymous. But it's, God is God. Then we have to understand how to connect him and how to serve him. And a lot of times we get lost on, on the way. So, so, you know, there's a famous story. Someone comes up to a Rebbe and says, I don't believe in God because of this, and I don't believe in God because of that, and I don't believe in God because of this. And the Rebbe says back to him, you know something? The God you don't believe in I also don't believe in. Meaning to say that all of this, that sometimes we've got just a, a, a very bizarre idea of what God is. You know, you know, a lot of people, and we'll just sort of like wrap it up on, on this point, and, um, and, and maybe, um, maybe that this is something that we can all take into the to, 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 the, to Rosh Hashanah, to the rest of Elul, to the rest of our lives. Let's all try our best to learn as much as we can about God. Who God is and what God is. Because that's, that's the whole ball of wax right there, so to speak. That's the whole thing right there. And then, once you understand who God is and what God is, everything else follows. Everything else follows. All the mitzvahs that you, you, you like, you don't like, you're thinking about, you're not thinking about, everything will then flow from an understanding of who and what God is. And, um, you know, ultimately, ultimately, there's something that we have to understand, which is that everything, this whole world, and all of the mitzvahs that we have, and all of the all the dreams that Hashem has for us. Remember, Reb Shlomo says that the, the Ten Commandments, right, are God's prayers for us and God's dreams for the world. And that when we're keeping the Torah, listen to this, so beautiful, we're praying God's prayers and we're dreaming God's dreams. And... Uh, you know, how about this for an epitaph on a tombstone? We should all live long. You know, he dreamed God's dreams. I take that. All right, have a good week.